Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 361 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 16, Post Landing and Moonwalk 1. Okay, down at 3. 
Roger, I copy 200 meters north of the spot and about 150 meters west. Dan, I could see the, I could see all the way to the ground, just like flying the LTV. Beat the cake. Good. Asset pressures look good. Okay. Asset helium monitor cycle. I did. O2. Asset. Fantastic. Percy Precision is planted one on the planes of Descartes. Well, camera stops. And it sure ain't flat, John. Wow. There's that ridge to the north. Yep. Sure is. All we got to do is jump out the hatch and we got plenty of rocks. Houston, uh, boy, it sure looks like you can make, uh, I see, uh, ground crater from here. I can see, uh, ray crater from here. Not a, boy. Almost that apoplexy, that program alarm, but that's your radar breaker. Charlie's, Charlie's about that. <laughs> Charlie's got nothing but a ridge to look at. That sounds beautiful, John. Wish I were there. There's a ridge out in There's one, there's a ridge out in front of us, too, John. Yeah, there's a ridge in front of us, one to the side of us, and my guess is that we're in a subdued old crater that's got a lot more craters. Ready to copy. What a neat place. <laughs> okay, Jim, this ridge in front of us uh, does look like a subdued crater, and it maybe is a, a raised rim about 50 meters in front of us, about, uh, oh, uh, four or five meters tall. That, about 30 or 40% of the surface is covered with boulders uh, that are uh, maybe a half a meter in size uh, uh, on out in front of us and to the right where we landed there were... Charlie wanted to tell Capcom everything he was seeing. He could not contain himself. He was like a little kid with his nose plastered against the candy store window. But what was outside wasn't candy. It was the most fantastic sight of rocks and hills and ridges and craters he had ever seen. But John interrupted him so they could get back to the important business at hand. Hey, man, Charlie. We got to stay, Houston? Stand by. Everything's looking okay up to this point, John. We'll give you a final word here shortly. A minute later, Capcom gave the okay to stay for T1 which meant they could go to a lower level of abort readiness. Over the next 35 minutes, Houston gave them a stay of T2 and then T3. These were inverse order levels of readiness and allowed Charlie and John to begin system power down as they gained more and more confidence that the integrity of the spacecraft was good. With their confidence growing, John and Charlie became more and more exuberant. Charlie said it was like the best Christmas, the best birthday, the best visit to an amusement park, all rolled into one instant of time. That was the feeling they had as they tried to describe what they were seeing. They probably said, fantastic, a hundred times. Now, a word on the technical details of the landing. The lunar module came to rest in a very slightly forward position. There were many shallow sloped craters in the landing area, which made it difficult for John to judge the surface. Even when he was down low to the ground, it still looked flat, but it really wasn't. If they had landed 25 meters in any direction from where they did land, they would have been in a hole. 
So, as I mentioned, they were quite fortunate to have touched down in the manner they did. With zero in roll, a north-south backward tilt, with their nose up only 2.5 degrees, and with only a slight yaw to the south. Young felt that he had just gotten lucky because he couldn't really judge the slopes very well. But it is interesting to note that only Armstrong in Apollo 11 and Conrad in Apollo 12 had landed more upright, and both of those had the advantage of descending into a lightly cratered mare site. All things considered, John was overjoyed that flying the lunar module had proven so remarkably easy. As you heard him tell Houston, Man, I could see all the way to the ground. Piece of cake. The landing site itself was in a big valley about 10 miles across, 200 yards to the north and 100 yards west of their intended landing target, a crater they named Double Spot. Mountains surrounded them. Charlie likened it to landing in the top of the Rocky Mountains. To the south, about five miles away, was a mountain range 700 to 800 feet high. They had named one of the peaks Stone Mountain, after Stone Mountain, Georgia, because it was smooth and rounded. They planned to drive the rover there, and it looked like they would have no problem at all climbing its slope. Five miles to the north was an area they named the Smoky Mountains because of their gray color. But due to a ridge that was a few hundred yards from the lunar module, they couldn't see those mountains, even though they rose nearly 1,000 feet above the valley floor. To the southeast, they could see the South Ray Crater, which was about seven miles away. It was white in color with distinct black streaks down its side. The crew felt so good about the landing site, they wanted to congratulate the FIDO, the flight dynamics officer, and his team for doing such a great job. FIDO was, of course, responsible for generating the data the lunar module's computer used to guide them to the rolling Cayley Plain of the Descartes Highlands. Hey, Jim, that's off in a case of beer to Fido. I'll tell you, that targeting was just beautiful. Boy, you guys just started us right in there. That was superb. Very good. At this point, the crew was still bubbling over with excitement and overwhelmed by the beauty of the moon. It was not the beauty of the earth with its cascading waterfalls and majestic rockies and snow-covered alps. It wasn't that kind of beauty because there was no life on the moon, not a blade of grass or a virus or a bacteria or anything. It was just one great big rock that had been pulverized by meteorites over the centuries and was now covered with a very fine dust. But the moon had a special beauty of its own. There was almost a purity about it, so still and pristine, unspoiled by any pollution of man. None of the surface looked like the terrain depicted in science fiction movies of jagged peaks or precipitous cliffs. Instead, 
The hills and mountains were all smooth and rolled gently toward the horizon. The surface was basically gray in color, though some rocks appeared dark gray or even black and a few were white, and everything was covered with a fine powdered-like dust. It was spectacularly beautiful, accented by the sharp contrast between the dark shadows and gray terrain. Since there was no atmosphere on the moon, the horizon was sharply defined. They could see a distinct break between the grayness of the moon and the blackness of space. Though the sun was shining brightly, the lunar sky was pitch black. No stars were visible due to the bright reflection off the lunar surface. They were to be on the moon for three days, and it was going to be daylight. A day on the moon from sunrise to sunset lasts 14 Earth days. Since they had landed very early on a moon day, the sun was about 15 degrees above the horizon in the east behind them and caused very long shadows of the lunar module, which they could see out their windows. But there wasn't much time for sightseeing. Okay, Charlie, when you get the uh, surface checklist, I have some changes that we want to take care of. Stand by. They probably are a few, aren't they? Yeah, there are a few, and we'll have a few more in order to conserve power to give you maximum stay time. The crew was instantly brought back to the reality of power down. Because of their landing delay, they had to change all the procedures and go through an extensive rewrite of timelines and checklists for John and Charlie's lunar stay. One of the major changes Houston decided was that due to the long day, the crew should go right away into their sleep period instead of their planned moonwalk. Of course, the crew really wanted to walk on the moon now. After training for almost three years and coming 240,000 miles and then being told, wait until tomorrow and go to sleep, it seemed crazy. But they knew it was the right thing to do. Everyone was tired. It had been a long, hard day's work because of the six-hour delay they had already been up almost 20 hours. Well, Jim, I feel exactly like I thought I was. I really want to get out, but I think the discretion is the better part of the valor here. Good. Glad you, glad you think that. Dad, it's really tempting, though. It really looks nice out there. This change in flight plan might have been a fairly easy decision to make, but it was a hard one to implement. It meant the astronauts were going to have to copy pages and pages of changes to procedures and checklists. Charlie began to write, and he wrote and wrote and wrote. It seemed like he was about to run out of pencil lead because of the hundreds of changes. Changes in the timeline and changes in the procedures. This was due to the revised sequence of events and their desire to conserve as much electrical power as possible. 
They had used up an extra six hours worth of power by delaying the landing. So, for the better part of an hour, the crew made corrections to the lunar surface checklist. Then there was a change of shift in mission control, and Tony England replaced Jim Irwin as Capcom. Tony was a geophysicist astronaut and was to be the Capcom during the lunar surface excursions. Tony trained extensively with the crew. He was highly qualified and a good friend and neighbor to Charlie. Tony would have given anything to have been in the crew's place, but he acted perfectly happy and content to be the person they would work closest with during their explorations, and the crew was delighted to have him. Tony had been great to work with during their geology field trips, and he was as excited about this mission as John and Charlie were. Okay, Tony, we got three of us in here now. John's out of his suit. And I assume all three are walking around. No, not exactly. One of them sort of lying here. The spacesuits were like another person. They took up so much room. Being in spacesuits for three days would have been really uncomfortable, so the crew decided while they were inside the lunar module to take off their suits and stand around in their long underwear. After Charlie and John finished stowing the suits, it was time for their first meal on the lunar surface. Charlie asked Tony, What do you call tomato soup made with cold water, Tony? Awful. John says cold tomato soup. Tony was right. Charlie suddenly realized that all of their meals for the next three days on the moon were going to be cold. They didn't have any hot water, and there was no way to heat up the food. But the 1-6 gravity did make eating effortless. It was the first time in days that they were able to eat soup without worrying whether they were going to eat it or take a bath in it. Tony suggested they deserve some champagne after their successful landing, but since alcohol was not allowed, they celebrated with the usual orange juice. Well, like John said earlier, we're definitely not going to get scurvy. Uh, we got so much orange drink here. When they finished their meal, they were ready to bed down for their first eight-hour rest period. John and Charlie both had nylon hammocks to sleep in while on the moon. Charlie attached to the spacecraft from right to left just a few inches off the floor. John was suspended forward to aft about two feet above Charlie so that they formed a cross while sleeping. They simulated darkness by placing opaque screens over the windows, just as they had done in the command module during their journey to the moon. Back on Earth, during this time, there were high-powered meetings going on at NASA, discussing the strong possibility of canceling the third moonwalk. Because of the extra consumption of water and power during the six-hour delay, almost all recommendations pointed toward a scrub. Late into the night, the NASA managers met, reviewing the options and risk. 
at the Apollo News Center, Houston change of shift briefing, about 9.32 p.m., Terry White, public affairs officer, called the press conference to order and introduced Rocco Patron, the Apollo program manager, and Jim McDivitt, the Apollo spacecraft program manager. Also present were the Gold Team flight director, Jerry Griffin, and Capcom, Jim Irwin. After briefing the press corps about the problem with the command module's engine, the questions zeroed in on the third EVA. Someone asked, Has anybody been back into one of the support rooms to see if there is a dogfight going on back there to decide who gets what and when? The support rooms being referred to were the geologists and scientists who had helped put the mission together since each had a large stake in the scientific knowledge gleaned from the excursions, no one wanted to lose out on any of their objectives. And if the third EVA was dropped, something would have to go. The geologists were anxious to retrieve three different types of specimens. South Ray Crater Ejecta and samples from what they called the Cayley formation and the Descartes Mountain. The third EVA was to explore North Ray Crater, a large crater deep in the Cayley Formation. It was hoped at North Ray the astronauts would find rocks from the deepest depth of the moon of any of the Apollo missions and give the scientists data for discovering the moon's origin. No one wanted to give up the third EVA. But right now, it didn't look good. The greatest concern was the crew's consumables. The meeting ended on the supposition that a third EVA looked unlikely. But the final decision would be made sometime later in the night or in the morning. Charlie was glad he was unaware of these meetings and didn't have the additional worry of losing one of their EVAs. Charlie's mind was nearly overloaded as it was. While attempting to sleep, he was thinking about all the things they had to do as well as being terribly excited about being on the moon. One minute he was thinking about how to fix their broken antenna. The next he was planning where to drill for soil samples during their first EVA. He just couldn't calm down. He finally took a sleeping pill. The pill helped, and he slowly began to drift off for a few hours of fitful sleep. But before getting to sleep, the crew was warned that during the night, they would likely experience two master alarms alerting them of overpressure in the attitude control system. Charlie was wearing the comm cap, or the headset, and barely asleep when the first of those alarms was triggered. It blasted in his ears. Bong, bong, bong. He almost leaped out of his skivvies and went through the top of the lunar module. His heart was pounding and he was extremely shook up. Then he realized what it was and reset the alarm and tried to go back to sleep. Besides the two alarms, which almost sent him into orbit, 
he was startled awake from a dead sleep a third time by a big blast of static from the radio. It was even louder than the master alarm. Charlie was instantly awake, practically jumping out of his skin and thinking he was going to be deaf. It seems Mission Control had improperly changed the communications antenna, causing the static. That first night on the moon wasn't a very restful experience for Charlie. Even so, he probably ended up with about six hours of decent sleep and was raring to get going the next morning. April 21st, 1972, on the lunar surface, Descartes. Hello, Houston, Orion. Ah, good morning, Charlie. I see your voice. Well, I see you guys. Uh, we're up. Did you, did you guys have a sight in over about 20 minutes ago? Hold on, I'll check. Okay, yes, I guess we did. Why'd you get skiing there? Okay, you dro- Well, you got the uplink a little bit, uh, dropped the uplink, and it's big blast static, and, uh, if that's why I picked up the uh, EKGs, uh, well, that's why I picked up EKG about 20 minutes ago. Okay, uh, the docs over here say, yeah, you did. Clearly, the crew was excited. The day had finally arrived. This day, they would walk on the moon. The shades were rolled up and the reflected sunlight was streaming in. It was a beautiful moon day, a perfect day for a moonwalk. Charlie was eager to go. In fact, he had been awake for an hour when the call came from Houston. Their call was a few minutes late, so Charlie went ahead and woke up John. Then the astronauts finished stowing their hammocks and ate a breakfast of peaches, cold scrambled eggs, cinnamon toast cubes, and a lemon food bar. It now became even more obvious that one-sixth gravity was delightful. Everything they did, including food preparation, eating, drinking, and going to the bathroom, was quite easy. While they ate, Houston reviewed their EVA schedule for the day. The good news was they were going to try to squeeze three EVAs into the remaining mission. Of course, John and Charlie were unaware there was any question about a third EVA. The bad news was there were a lot more changes to be made in the timeline for the first lunar excursion, and it wasn't long before the crew's eagerness turned into frustration. Trying to get suited up and at the same time making all those fairly complicated changes in the procedures began to confuse them. To further complicate matters, their comm signal was coming across garbled, noisy, and scratchy. Therefore, mission control was having a difficult time hearing them. The crew became concerned that once they were in their life support systems, they were going to be in a condition where nobody could talk to anybody. Along with the calm problem, John and Charlie were having a terrible time getting into their pressure suits 
It was a tight fit in the lunar module anyway, and with their backpacks, boots, and everything else, something was always in the way. Suiting up turned out to be the most difficult task. First came the liquid-cooled garment, a suit of underwear into which a network of thin plastic tubes had been woven. During their EVAs, water would circulate through the tubes, cooling them. Next came the pressure suits. Putting them on was definitely a two-man operation. John could hold up a 50-pound pressure suit with one hand while Charlie was unzipping it with one hand. After getting his suit unzipped, Charlie chinned himself on the overhead guardrail and extended both legs into the suit while John held it. Charlie then ducked his head into the neck ring and put his arms into the sleeves. One problem came in trying to close the suit's zipper. Once again, because the zero gravity of the outbound trip Charlie's body had stretched out a bit, and the suit was too tight. Then, it was John's turn for all the contortions. From Charlie's perspective, they looked like the Keystone Cops falling all over each other as they tried to get their spacesuits on. Finally, they had to just stop, take a breath, and begin to methodically proceed, step by step. Next, they had to put on their backpacks, the Portable Life Support System, P-L-S-S, pronounced PLESS. The PLESS contained a lithium hydroxide canister to remove CO2, and they supplied oxygen and cooling water, and associated pumps and fans. Next came the helmets and gloves. This was when Charlie realized part of the problem with his communication. His microphones were full of that blasted orange juice. Once he cleaned them out, his calm was better, but their voices were still coming across weak. After getting their suits and backpacks on, they connected all the oxygen and communications lines. Then, the last thing was to put on their gloves. John quickly reported that his gloves were on and locked but Charlie was having trouble finding his. Charlie asked, You don't see one of my white gloves down there anywhere, do you? No, groaned John. I sure don't, Charlie. On the floor anywhere, John? Charlie was getting worried. No, I don't see one, John replied, exasperated. Ah, here it is. Charlie sighed in relief, finding it in one of the storage areas. Now, according to John, the suiting up ordeal took 20 minutes. But Charlie wrote in his book that it took two hours. The last hurdle was the suit pressure check. The crew depressurized the cabin and checked their suit's operation at 3.75 PSI. Both suits passed. The pressure setting of 3.75 PSI after being in their lunar module cabin with 100% O2 at 5 PSI worked well to prevent the astronauts from getting the bends. 
Next, Houston gave them the go for depressurization of the lunar module. They began to crank open the valve on the back of the hatch and heard a big whoosh sound as the valve popped open and air was blown out of the module. The cabin pressure decreased from 5 pounds per square inch to 0.2 pounds, low enough for John to attempt opening the hatch. Here she comes. She's coming open, Charlie exclaimed. There it is. Hatch is open, Houston. The last thing to do before climbing out was to get their suit cooling water turned on. Neither one of them could reach their own switches, so as they helped each other, they resembled two bulls in a china shop, grunting and scraping against one another and the instrument panel. Finally, with both cooling water systems working, they stood together with pressurized suits in the lunar module cabin. Fortunately, they didn't have to stay there long. In just a few minutes, it would be time for John to crawl feet first out through the hatch. The waiting was difficult because the cabin became really small when they had those inflated suits and backpacks on, and they had to be very careful not to smack up against something like a circuit breaker or valve setting. Okay, Houston, Charlie announced. We're ready to get out. Hey, why don't you go out, John? Charlie tried to hurry up John. John was to be the first out, and Charlie almost forced him out the hatch, eager for his own turn. As John egressed, Charlie tried to assist him with instructions. Okay. Check your feet out. Okay, your twist is over under, partially over under the purse. Come this way a little bit. The only way out was kneeling down and backing out on hands and knees through the hatch and onto the porch. Finally, Charlie's impatience grew to the point of yelling at John to hurry up. To Charlie, John seemed to be taking his sweet time climbing down the ten-foot ladder. I'm hurrying, John answered. But it was not as if John wasn't ready to become the ninth human being in human history to set foot on another heavenly body. It was 11.47 a.m. on April 21, 1972 when the EVA began. The instant John stepped down, he felt the triumph, not just for himself or his crew, but for all the 400,000 Americans who had contributed to the Apollo program. He lifted both his fists in the air and made an unrehearsed proclamation.
To repeat what John said, quote, There you are, our mysterious and unknown Descartes Highlands Plains. Apollo 16 is going to change your image. End quote. John meant by that remark that if their geological work went well, science's understanding of the moon would be advanced significantly. Then John made a second reference that some people did not understand. In case you didn't hear that, John said, quote, I'm glad they got old Brer Rabbit here, back in the briar patch where he belongs. This was a reference to the Joel Chandler Harris story called how Mr. Rabbit was too sharp for Mr. Fox. In the story, Br'er Rabbit has become entangled with the Tar Baby and is caught by Br'er Fox. Br'er Fox thinks he might roast Br'er Rabbit, who says, I don't care what you do with me, Br'er Fox, just so you don't fling me into that briar patch. As it turns out, there is no firewood handy, so Br'er Fox thinks about hanging Br'er Rabbit, who said that would be much better than being thrown in the briar patch, and so on. As a boy, John was a big fan of the Br'er Rabbit stories, many of them derived from an African-American oral tradition that he was familiar with through his youthful association in Cartersville with Aunt Alice, Aunt Fanny, and Uncle Jim number two. On his fourth space flight, NASA had finally thrown John Young into the briar patch. Salutations from my mother-in-law's backyard. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 361 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 16, Post-Landing, and Moonwalk 1. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released on April 15th. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 187 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Okay, I had some afterthoughts on this episode. First of all, Charlie seems to have a lot of trouble sleeping. And I can really identify with that. He just can't turn his mind off. He feels he has to solve tomorrow's problems before he can sleep. Now, I think a lot of, of us can understand that. Plus, he had the extra excitement of being on the moon. His dream come true. I personally would need a sleeping pill 
also. <laughs> then, the funny part was they kept waking him up with the alarms and that static burst he was talking about. Yet, he still had enough adrenaline to be raring to go the next morning to the point of telling John Young to hurry up so he could get on the surface as well. (laughs) He was excited and not scared a bit. What did you think about the cuisine on Orion? (laughs) I guess that's the same stuff they'd had on all of them, but wow, that's kind of rough. The cold food they had to eat seemed pretty unpleasant. I guess I would eat it if that was all I had, but I wouldn't like it. Cold tomato soup and orange drink, which got spilled. You know, after all that acidicness of the soup and the orange I would definitely need a Tums after that. I wonder if they carried Tums up there with them. It seems like to me the first moonwalk for each mission is always the hardest to get ready for. With every mission, that first suiting up seems to be really difficult. I found it interesting that John says it only took 20 minutes to suit up in his book. And Charlie says it took two hours. (laughs) When you get a discrepancy like that, I think the answer must be somewhere in the middle. In John's book, he seems to downplay most things that happen, no matter how serious they were. (laughs) He's Mr. Cool, and he's going to downplay it. Charlie takes the exact opposite approach. He builds it up. (laughs) He will build it up and make it an extremely big deal. I guess the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Now, finally, for those interested in the farm project, if you're not, just skip ahead. As you heard, we are in the camper in Mrs. SRH's mother's backyard. This is because we don't have everything we need at the farm to set up the camper yet. There is an old mobile home that was supposed to be moved out last month. And it is in the way of where I want to park the camper. Now why in the whole area of the farm do I want to park the camper in that spot? Well, that's a very simple answer to that question. It's because the water and septic tank connections are already there at that spot. When living out of a camper, long term, you need four things, or I need four things. Electric power, water, sewer, and for me and this podcast, I'd better have an internet connection. Now, We don't have that at the farm now. So my mother-in-law was so gracious that she said we could just come and stay in her backyard. And actually, we stayed in the house a few nights. And I appreciate that so much. She is so nice, and she loves having us here. She lives alone, and she loves the company of us being here. 
I will, uh, I do feel quite fortunate to even have the camper here because when we moved it, the leaf spring hangers broke. That's the little hangers that hold the leaf spring suspension on the camper. They broke. And it had to go to the shop to get those replaced. Nobody seems to know why they would fail on both sides of the camper, but they did. So we slowly drove it to the shop, and they fixed it there. It took about a week, and it cost a mere $788 for four pieces of metal that they had to put on. They told me, It's the labor, not the material. What a bargain, huh? But it is so nice to have the camper again. So that is where we are now. Hopefully, we will get out to the farm in a few weeks. Okay, let's move on. Over the last fortnight, we had several contributions and increases. I would like to give a giant thanks to Philip Yu who donated at the NASA level. That, my friends, is the highest level, and he is the first one to reach it this year. So, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so very much, Philip. We really do appreciate your support of the podcast. And thank you also, William S. from California, who donated at the Voyager level. Bruce M. from Washington, who donated at the... Orion level and earned a shooting star emoji. James M. from Illinois sent in another donation and moved to the shuttle level with galaxy emoji. Marshall V. from Texas donated at the Gemini level in memory of his father, Fred B. Voigt, M.D. Dr. Voigt was an electrical engineer and a physician who conducted research for the experimental medicine section at the Manned Spacecraft Center and worked with Mercury and Gemini projects. Martin C. sent in another donation and moved to the Soyuz level. Joe P. from Michigan donated at the Mercury level. Ira H. from Texas donated at the Mercury level. Chris D. from California donated at the Mercury level and earned a satellite emoji. Alan M. from Michigan donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. Marcus S. from Germany donated at the Sputnik level and earned a shooting star emoji. Chet G. from Canada pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. Our total Patreon donors are at 255. Our total donors for the year have reached 325 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of 2021. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. As you know, we have moved and I am delighted to be able to visit with my mom more frequently. Now for the drawing. The winner for this episode will get the choice of a space rocket history magnet or two stickers or two static clings or two holographic stickers 
or the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Alan Markham. Alan Markham, if you would email us, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we will get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 325 of you who have contributed thus far in 2021. My sources for this episode were NASA, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Moonwalker by Charlie Duke, Forever Young by John Young, Apollo 16 Flight Journal, Apollo 16 Mission Report, Apollo 16 Timeline, Apollo 16 Surface Journal, The Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 362 posted by April 15th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.